Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day... The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you and we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for how we have worshiped you already this morning. Father, we're thankful that you sent Jesus as we enter into this season, as we think about that great sacrifice that was made on our behalf because of our sin. Father, we just give you thanks. We give you glory. We give you praise. We pray that this morning you you would speak, that you would speak through your word, that you would speak to our hearts, our minds, our lives. Father, we pray that we would know Jesus better because of our time this morning in your word. May you reveal your glory to us, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Today we are celebrating Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is a reference to, at least the title of it, is a reference to the fact that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on his way to the cross, at the beginning of that week as he entered into Jerusalem, People took palm branches, as we see in this account and in other gospel accounts, they took palm branches and they waved them. They laid their coats, they laid their robes out in front of Jesus as he was traveling into the city, and they were crying out, Hosanna, which literally means save now. And they're crying out this, and they're they're saying, what they're truly saying is that they understand Jesus to be a fulfillment of some of the messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, literally. Uh, the word in the, the Hebrew is it's where we get our word Messiah. And when it goes into the Greek, it's the word Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we are literally saying Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the anointed one. The, there were three, you know, some of you know this, there were three offices in the Old Testament where someone was anointed with oil for that office, the offices of prophet, of priest, and of king. And Jesus fit all three. Jesus is the prophet, Jesus is our great high priest, and Jesus is the king, as we're looking at today. And so we find that as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, people were saying, he's the Messiah. But the problem was that they were nearsighted. Now, I don't mean literally nearsighted. Uh, I am physically nearsighted. I wear contact lenses. Some of you are, are nearsighted. We can't see out to a, at a certain distance. It, things get blurry and we need corrective lenses. 
But when I say that the people here were nearsighted, I don't, I'm not talking about physical nearsightedness. I'm talking about spiritual nearsightedness. They saw Jesus as Messiah, but they only saw him through the lens of their expectations of what the Messiah was going to be. And because of that nearsighted view of Jesus, they did not fully comprehend what God was doing. They did not fully comprehend who Jesus was. That spiritual nearsightedness, because of their expectations, caused them to be blind to the work of God in the person of Jesus. And by the way, a work of God rarely will leave your expectations intact. We may come before God and say, I have all these expectations, I have this checklist, and this is what all I expect God to do. It is rare that those expectations remain intact when God begins to work. Because God has his own plan, he has his own purposes, he has his own timing, he has his own way of doing things. And if we aren't careful, we will start taking the template of our expectations and we will put them over God and say, no, 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 God must work in this way. And that's what we find that happens when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. We find that the people said, oh, he's the Messiah, because they were looking at him through a particular lens. So to this morning, I want us to look at, throughout John 12 and some other verses, I want us to look at what were some of these expectations and then contrast that with what was the reality of who Jesus was. What was the reality of what Jesus was going to do as contrasted to the things they expected Jesus was going to do. Well, first of all, this expectation that the people had, it was focused upon a change in earthly leadership. But we find that Jesus' kingdom is spiritual in nature. They were expecting someone to come in and someone to kick out the Romans and someone would establish a new kingdom for Israel And that new kingdom would be a visible kingdom, and they would defeat all of these other earthly authorities. All of this earthly leadership would be turned on its ear, and there would be a new king who would enter into the the whole scheme of things. That is how they viewed the Messiah. Uh, Listen to Luke chapter 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and don't miss this phrase, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The people listening to Jesus said, oh, 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 we know about the kingdom. We believe the kingdom is going to appear immediately. The kingdom is going to show up and Rome is going to be kicked out. We know that King Herod, this puppet king, he is going to be overruled. He's going to be dethroned. All of these rulers that we have in this present time, they are going to have to bow down to the Messiah, to the one who's going to come and set all things right. There's going to be a change in earthly leadership, and it's going to happen now. But you find that when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, that's not what happens. You don't find that when Jesus enters into Jerusalem that he says, well, I'm going to march right up the stairs of, of the palace Antonia and I'm going to find Her- or I'm going to find Pilate and I'm going to tell him exactly who I am and I'm going to tell him exactly what's going to go down with him. That's not what he, that's not what happens. You don't find Jesus saying the first thing I'm going to do when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to pay a little visit to Herod's palace. And I'm going to show Herod what a true king looks like, what a true king does, how a true king rules. 
It's not what he does. Instead, the first place that Jesus goes after he enters into Jerusalem and takes any sort of action is the temple. He goes to the temple. Listen to Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He goes to his father's house. And the first thing that he does is he starts clearing out his father's house. He starts clearing out the place that it was sort of understood to be the physical residence, the physical place, the physical throne of God there on earth, so to speak, there in Jerusalem in the temple at the ark. And the ark wasn't there at that time, of course. Uh, It had been lost in some invasions many years before. But it was understood this is the place that God is worshipped. This is the place that he has made his dwelling. And so now Jesus, he doesn't go to the palace and he doesn't go to the headquarters of the Roman general or the, or the Roman governor. No, he goes to the temple because his kingdom is spiritual in nature. He shows up to operate and to show them this is a spiritual thing. First and foremost, the physical stuff comes later. This is a spiritual kingdom that I am talking about. And notice in Matthew, when Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple after he enters into the city, some people have said it's because they were selling stuff in the temple. Well, no, that wasn't really the issue. The issue was they were creating some structure where people, they were, they were overcharging people for changing money because you had to pay a temple tax based on a certain type of monetary system a certain type of silver coin that had a high silver content. So you had to pay your temple tax. So people would come from all over the places. They would bring their own money and they would exchange the money for the appropriate type of currency in order to pay the temple tax. But also because people were traveling from many miles away in order to come and worship at the temple so that they didn't have to carry a sacrifice with them, they offered sacrificial animals for sale there in the area. But where did they set up? They set up in the court of Gentiles. They set up where the nations were going to come to worship. Because the Gentiles couldn't go far into the temple complex like the Jews could. They had to stay out here in this outer temple area, this outer courtyard. And they set up in the outer courtyard. And so now you've got people who are non-Jews who can't come and they can't worship. And the people who are Jewish who are coming to worship, now you find that These people are having them jump through all these holy hoops, as it were, to say, no, no, you need to buy this animal, and no, no, you need to do this, and no, you need to do that. And Jesus goes and he cleanses his father's house. Because he they're saying, why are you doing this? Because he has the authority to do that. Because he is setting up a heavenly, a spiritual kingdom, and he's letting them know he's the king of that spiritual kingdom. But it's not an earthly change in leadership. You find this in more detail in John chapter 18. Jesus has been arrested and the high priest has sort of examined Jesus and they take him to Pilate's headquarters. John 18 verse 28, then they, that is the Jewish leaders, led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that 
they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. They're con- so concerned about being ceremonially clean so they could celebrate the Passover so they don't enter into a non-Jew's home for risk of being rendered ceremonially unclean so that they can eat the Passover meal. But yet they're bringing the Messiah to be killed. But they themselves don't want to enter in because they think that's going to render them unclean. That's such a degree of hypocrisy, it's staggering. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Here's Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you asking because you want to know? Or are you asking because you heard somebody say that? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom does not have its authority base here in this world. My kingdom is not based upon any part of human authority. My kingdom is not some structure that has arisen out of the best of human minds. No, he says, my kingdom is off this world. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom has come into this world, but it's not dependent upon the way the world works. That's a good lesson for us. You look around, you click on the news. If you can stomach it. You click on the news and you watch and you look at everything that's unfolding. And it's so easy for us to wring our hands and to knit our brows and to say, oh, oh goodness, everything seems to be falling off its axis. Everything seems to be just, just going downhill. I don't know what we're going to do. This is, we're in such dire straits and we are, but can I tell you who is in the white house is not as important as who is in your heart. That's what truly matters. And if you've got Christ in your heart and you have your hope set upon glory, then yes, we should affect a change. Yes, we should live as good citizens. Yes, we should vote in the way that, that brings the most honor and praise and glory to God. But at the same time, our future is not dependent upon that. Our future, our hope, our confidence is in Christ. And by the way, he said things are going to get bad. He said that. People are going to grow worse and worse. Nations will keep rising up against God. Nations will keep fighting against the work of God. This should not come as a surprise. He said it would happen. 
And so we see this all unfolding. And so many times we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, why don't you just come and why don't you just, why don't you just change everything? But can I tell you, Jesus is changing things. He's changing it through the gospel. He's changing it through his kingdom. His kingdom is not held captive to any earthly power. His kingdom is not held hostage by whomever may be in power, no matter what the time frame, no matter what the country, it doesn't matter. His kingdom is not held hostage to any of those things. Neither are his children. And neither should the minds of his children be held hostage to those things. I mean, sometimes people, you know, get, get all concerned. I've had people come to my office and talk to me and say, I'm just really torn up over what's happening. And I'm thinking, for goodness sake, are, are you as torn up over the spiritual condition of things? Are we as torn up? Are we, are we being prayerful? Are we being, listen, are we being prayerful for our leaders? I talked to somebody here recently and they were fussing and griping about everything that's going on in the world. And I said, yeah, I just really make it a matter of prayer. And the response was this, I don't pray for those people. And then my response was this, then you have no right to complain. Till you're willing to pray, you need to shut up with the complaining. You need to pray. Uh, Peter, Peter tells the people in the early church, pray for the king. Who was, he's talking about Nero. He's talking about somebody who's persecuting Christians and trying to destroy Christians left and right. Pray for him. Honor the king. Pray for the king. Listen, we need to pray for our leaders because we have to understand it's a spiritual change that has to take place. If you're basing your hope on who wins the next election, that's, that's not where our hope is found. Okay? It's, you know, we do want to pray for, for good people to be leading. Absolutely. But our ultimate hope is not based upon that. If that is where you're placing your hope, you're nearsighted. You're spiritually nearsighted. We place our hope in Christ and Christ alone and in the spiritual kingdom that is coming. So the expectation of the people kind of blinded them to this. Secondly, they expected a conquering ruler. But we have Jesus as a humble savior. Look at this, look at this passage Back to our main passage, John chapter 12. Look at verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That phrase, daughter of Zion, whenever you see that, that is a reference to the city of Jerusalem. When you see daughter of Zion, you can just, just equate that with Jerusalem. So fear not, Jerusalem. Your king is coming. This is a reference to a prophecy about the Messiah found in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9, 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, there's the phrase again, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus does not ride into the city on a war horse. Jesus does not ride into the city in a chariot. Jesus rides in on an animal of peace, a donkey. Now, if you've ever ridden a donkey, you might think that's not an animal of peace. <laughs> and they can, they can sometimes be extraordinarily stubborn and combative. But the, Jesus rides in as a humble savior. He rides in not as a conquering king, again, not on a war horse, but he comes in on a donkey. Humble. And this humility 
is extended all the way to the death of Jesus. Not only did he enter in a humble way, he humbles himself and he dies a sinner's death. Not just humble, but humiliating. You you find it over in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Peter is saying, you are the Messiah. And he strictly charged them until no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now that seems like an awfully harsh statement for Jesus to make to Peter. Get behind me, Satan? But notice what precedes that. Jesus, after Peter makes the statement, You're the Messiah, Jesus says, Let me tell you, about the Messiah. The Messiah, me, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be pushed aside. I'm going to have the religious leaders of the day refuse to acknowledge me for who I am. And not only that, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be executed. And then I'm going to rise again on the third day. Notice what Peter does. Peter takes him aside and says, no, we're not going to have this talk about a dying Messiah. You shouldn't be talking about stuff like that. That's not the way it's going to go. You can't say that, Jesus. No, we've been following you. There's a plan and this is not a dying Messiah is not part of the plan. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me. Because you're not even mindful of the things of God. You're mindful of the things regarding or from man. Peter's only seeing this from a human perspective. Here's Peter. Not some person that Jesus just met. Not some person out in the countryside that heard Jesus preach. Not some religious leader that's been balking at who Jesus claims to be. No, none of that. This is Peter who's been living alongside Jesus, ministering alongside Jesus, walking with Jesus, eating with Jesus, has seen all the miracles, has heard all the teaching. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're still not getting it. Listen, anything less than the full messiahship of Jesus is satanic. Anything less than God's perfect plan for the Messiah is not from God. And Jesus says, Peter, you're you're thinking about this from strictly a human viewpoint. I'm the humble savior. I'm not the one who's coming as a conquering ruler. I'm a humble savior. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in human form. By the way, some people have made a big deal of that, that phrase. And they say being found in human form. It just means he was in the form of human. It doesn't mean he's really human. Can I just tell you what that word form means? In the original language, that word means the exact perfect representation. The exact perfect representation. Jesus came in fullness of humanity. 100% humanity. He's 100% God. He's 100% human. Because he's 100% human, 
He can take our place on the cross. Because he is 100% God, he is absolutely perfect, and he is a perfect sacrifice for all time, and not able to just make a sacrifice one for one for one other person, one other one sinner. No, he in his perfection can make a sacrifice for all. He's 100% God. 100% God plus 100% man equals 100% Jesus. So he is 100% human, 100% God, 100% human, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His humility extended to the place that Jesus was willing to go to the cross for you and me. Conquering ruler who comes and sets everything right? No, he's more than that. He's a humble savior. He comes riding in on a lowly donkey. Riding into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. There's one more expectation I want us to touch on today. There were probably many, many expectations we could talk about. But they were expecting deliverance from their national enemies. That's what they expected. But Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. Let's go all the way back to this whole idea of sacrificial lamb. Let's, Let's backtrack all the way back to Exodus. You backtrack all the way back to Exodus and you get to Exodus chapter 12. And actually, you start kind of reading the details. We don't have time to go into the details, but I invite you to read them uh, later this week. I actually encourage you to read, those, read that. Read Exodus 12 later this week. But you find the first Passover that is celebrated. Israel is being held captive. They're slaves in Egypt. And God has sent a number of plagues, and Pharaoh had hardened his heart against those. And time had gone on over a period of of time where Moses is proclaiming these plagues and they're coming. And the final thing that God does that finally breaks the will and breaks the back of their captivity is that God is going to cause the death of the firstborn of every family. And God says, to be declared safe, you are to take a lamb a lamb without blemish, and you were to bring it into your home. And for five days, that lamb is to live there with your family. It's a personal lamb. It's a lamb your, your kids are going to grow attached to, but you're going you're gonna to live in the house with this little lamb. You're going to bring it into your home for those five days, and then you're going to slaughter that little lamb. And that's not only going to be the the sacrificial meal, but you're going to take his blood and you're going to smear it on the doorposts and on the lintel, that the cross piece over the top of the door. And notice it says this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13, the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever you shall keep it as a feast. That's the establishment of the Feast of Passover. The the nation of Israel will begin celebrating the Feast of Passover at the end of this week. On Friday, they'll begin celebrating the Feast of Passover. So we find that the Passover celebration that took place is a remembrance commanded by God of what happened at that first Passover when All of the firstborn were being struck dead, but when God saw the blood, he would pass over that home where that little lamb had been sacrificed. So we find this idea of the lamb mentioned multiple times. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, 
Speaking of the suffering servant of God, the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You find this this term applied to Jesus very early on in his ministry as he was calling his first disciples. You find that John the Baptist sees Jesus and in John chapter 1 verse 29 it says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so we find that Jesus he's not it's not just a deliverance from national enemies it's a deliverance from our sin that's the most important part because you find that Rome continued to rule over this nation for many years after this and things got even worse If you look at the history of A.D. 70, the year 70, everything that went down with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Romans and all the atrocities they committed, things got terrible there in that city. But we find that Jesus is a sacrificial lamb. Let me give you an interesting point as we're talking about Palm Sunday. If you go all the way back to the beginning of John chapter 12, you find that this movement of this particular part of the life of Jesus, it starts in John chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, six days before the Passover, he's in Bethany, which is just a little ways away from uh, Jerusalem over on one side of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is there six days before the Passover. And then we find this at the beginning of the passage we looked at today in John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, a large crowd the large crowd that had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So it's the day after that day he was in Bethany. Six days before Passover, he's in Bethany. The next day, he makes the triumphal entry. Five days before the Passover, which is the number of days before, the number of days before the Passover that the people in the area, as commanded by God, would have been bringing those sacrificial lambs into their homes. The very day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem to be the sacrificial lamb on that day that is coming at the end of the week, it's the very day that all over the region people were bringing those little sacrificial lambs into their homes. And on that same day, Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, enters into Jerusalem five days before Passover. Josephus tells us that on that day, 250,000 lambs were sacrificed later on that week in celebration of the Passover. 250,000 lambs. Can you imagine the amount of blood that was coursing through the gutters and the streams uh, of, of surrounding Jerusalem as those animals were being sacrificed there? There at the temple. Can you just imagine that? 250,000. And while the blood of all those little sacrificial lambs were being, was being spilt, that was at the same time that Jesus, our sacrificial lamb, was being nailed to the cross. Same time. Same area. Same place. You know, there's nothing coincidental, nor is there anything accidental with God When we celebrate Palm Sunday, we're not just talking about the triumphal king entering. We're talking about the sacrificial lamb coming into the place where he would give his life 
Not for deliverance from national enemies, but for deliverance from sin. This is why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's, that's, the, that's the imagery. Oh, the people waving their palm branches, the people laying out their cloaks, all they saw was, he's a conquering king. And Jesus knows, he knows I'm a conquering king, but I'm going to conquer sin and death and the grave. And I'm coming in, I'm riding in as a humble, sacrificial lamb. That's not the end of the story, though. Flash forward. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. There's no donkey. There's no, he's, a, he's, a, he's a conquering military ruler in this image. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is the imagery that they were expecting that first time he makes that triumphal entry. If you know him as who he is from that first triumphal entry, then who he shows up as when he returns will not strike terror in your heart, but it will create that reverential awe because you realize that the armies of heaven come back with him And those of us who are followers of Christ will return with him if we have died before that time. That's the promise. He will come back as a conquering ruler. He will come back as a conquering king. He will come back and set all things right. He will defeat all of the enemies. He will strike everything down and raise everything up in a way that brings him glory, honor, and praise. It will happen when he resets everything, but he first resets the issue of sin he deals with that first and foremost revelation 17 verse 14 they that is these enemy nations that rise up against him they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful that's what we have to look forward to That's what we have to be looked forward to. We cannot afford to be short-sighted, nearsighted, myopic about who Jesus is and who Jesus has revealed himself to be. But we also can't be short-sighted and fail to recognize this now is not the way it's always going to be. He is going to set all things right. He will return. It won't be on a donkey. It'll be on a war horse. It, it, It won't be... It won't be to set up an invisible kingdom that's going to continue to spread. No, it's going to be a clear, clearly visible kingdom that rules over all 
kingdoms, all nations, all peoples forever. That's what we have to look forward to. That's why we celebrate Palm Sunday. It's not just a matter of Jesus is here. No, it's Jesus is here. He's the conquering king who conquers sin. He's the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Lord, there may be some here this morning, maybe some listening or watching. They've never said yes to Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. If Jesus, if that sacrifice that Jesus made has not been applied to our lives by faith in him, by surrender of our lives, then that can only mean one thing. We must pay the price for our sin ourselves. Those are the only two options. Either we pay for our sin for all eternity in hell, separated from you, Lord, or we receive the sacrifice, the gift of salvation that Christ offers to us by his death, burial, and resurrection. Those are the only two options. We receive the free gift of salvation or we pay for eternity ourselves. There's no middle way. There's no third way. There's no other way. So, Father, I pray that today would be the day that some would say an eternal yes to Jesus. They would come before you recognizing the mercy, the love, the grace that is being extended, but also understand that the cruelty of that cross shows how severe our sin is in your understanding. And Father, you have the right understanding of sin, that it separates us from, from you, that it, it controls us, it, 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 it influences every area of our lives. Father, we can be delivered by coming before you and surrendering our lives and asking for forgiveness that is found in Christ. Father, I pray that today would be the day that many would do just that. Father, I pray if any of us have, are putting our hope and our faith and our trust and our, our expectation of a better tomorrow upon anything other than Christ, Father, I pray that you would work in us and correct that. You would right our thinking. You would fix our focus upon Christ and Christ alone. And that we would not be, as Peter was, just mindful of the things of man. We want to be mindful of the things concerning you. And I pray that you would do that in us. Help us to not be nearsighted when it comes to the work of the Messiah. And when you disrupt our expectations of what the Messiah should be, Father, may we be very quick to open our hands and let those things go and receive what you want to give us. We thank you for your truth, God. We thank you for the way that you've spoken. We thank you for your encouragement. We thank you, Lord, that we can live by your word. The just shall live by faith, and our faith is dependent upon your word. We're thankful for your word. We ask that you would go before us in this time of decision. 
that you would give boldness and strength and encouragement for whatever decision needs to be made this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name.